From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. One of the great things about making these podcasts is the opportunity I get to spend this time with people I enjoy and respect. In this case, I was able to talk with someone I've followed and admired for nearly 40 years now, but never had a chance to meet. His name is Kevin Kelly, and I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. Kevin Kelly is senior maverick at Wired, the magazine he co-founded in 1993, and where he served as executive editor for the publication's first seven years. He's also founder of the popular Cool Tools website, which has been reviewing tools daily for more than 20 years. From 1984 to 1990, Kevin was publisher and editor of the Whole Earth Review and was also involved with the launch of Well, a pioneering online service started in 1985. Kevin's also an accomplished author. We'll talk today about his latest book, and in the past he's written The Inevitable, a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Out of Control, the 1994 classic on decentralized emergent systems, the Silver Cord, a graphic novel about robots and angels, What Technology Wants, a robust theory of technology, and Vanishing Asia, his 50-year project to photograph the disappearing cultures of Asia. Today's episode of Blue Sky with Kevin Kelly is going to be a little different. We'll start by talking about why he thinks optimism is so important and how it guides the way he looks at the world and views our future. But from there, we're going to focus on his new book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. It's a collection of short pieces of wisdom, maxims and aphorisms, and I decided that it would be fun to simply read some of these back to Kevin for his reaction and reflections. I really enjoy the opportunity to do this with Kevin, and I hope you get as much out of our conversation as I did. Kevin Kelly, thank you for joining me on the Blue Sky Podcast. It's my pleasure and honor, and I am so delighted to chat with you. Thank you. So we're going to talk about your upcoming book, which I loved, by the way, and thank you for the advanced copy. But since I'm calling you from the studios of the Optimism Institute, uh, I'd like to be sure that we start there. And you are pretty active on social media, but you have pinned a tweet. And that tweet says, over the long term, the future is shaped by optimists. So I have two questions from that. One, how did you reach this conclusion? And two, why do you think it's so important that it's the, it's the tweet you chose to pin on your profile? Those are good questions. Um, I think that uh, it's important because it's only through optimism that we can actually imagine what we want to make that is good. We're not going to arrive there inadvertently and accidentally. So this work of imagination is the only way we're going to make these really good things into the future. And so uh, looking back to see where we are right now is very obvious that people who made these things that we like, the iPhone or cars, were people who believed that they could be made, who believed that they should be made. And that is the work of optimism. And so basically it means that the world has been shaped by optimists. And so that for me was more of a, that's the journey that I took to, to this realization that I am, I'm, I'm actually living in a world that was made by predominantly optimists. Well, and, and in addition to being an optimist, you're also, I think, could be considered a, a technophile. Um, but you weren't always that way. And I find your personal story very interesting. Your heroes early on were not tech types. They were more the Emerson Thoreau type. Could you just sort of quickly walk us through that journey that you went on to get to the viewpoint you have today? Yeah, I, I, I grew up kind of a hippie-ish in my wanting to keep technology at a uh, arm's length to, to, to not really be enamored of it, for sure. And I think the, the, the change I had was actually 
when I had an experience with putting a modem onto a Apple IIe computer very early on and experiencing this emerging new land of the online world and realizing that there was something that felt kind of organic and Amish to, to me in the way that the communities were being built. That, that was the initial inciting moment that made me start to think about technology in a different way. Like if this stuff is, could be good and as it was becoming built on computers, I was like, well, you know, they're empowering individuals. It's it's not the big steamroller. It's not the big factories. It's not the big computer. It's, it's this personal stuff. And so I started to shift my opinion and began to look at technology in a different way. And I had the lucky privilege to attend the first artificial life conference where there were people who were modeling biological systems with technology. And that was, again, part of my process in understanding that technology as a system was inherently not antagonistic to nature, that it was actually an extension of it, and that we could always make technology greener. So that was part of my journey was, was all, all launched from this experience in living online in the early 80s. Yeah, early 80s. So so. Very few were living online in the early '80s, so right, you, you've right, sort of right. seen the, you've seen the full arc. So one of the things you talked about, though, as much as you are a fan of technology, you used an interesting phrase uh, I heard recently, where you said that to, many of today's problems were solved by yesterday's solutions. Can you describe that? I thought I thought that was a really interesting concept, including climate change. I think was one that you used as an example. Exactly. Almost all of today's problems are are caused by last year's technological solutions. And so most of the problems in the future are going to be caused by today's technological solutions. That would be kind of a horrible rat race if all we got out of it was technology causing problems, which are solved by other technology, which cause problems. What we get out of that kind of forever cascade is increasing choices and options. And so we right now live in a world where we have so many more choices and options than even 10 years ago or 20 years ago that very, very few of us would ever be willing to travel back into the past, particularly if we couldn't choose who we were born into and where. We will use technology to continue to increase the number of choices, even though we're still going to always have problems. And some of the problems coming up are going to be bigger than the problems in the past because the more powerful a technology, the more powerfully it can be abused and misused. And so AI, as an example, will generate huge new problems at a scale that we haven't seen before. Um, but there'll be far, far more benefits and opportunities that there'll be slightly more good than harm made by it. Right. And, and, it's funny to, to compare the two, but you talk about AI, but way back, the Industrial Revolution, you might argue, lifted people out of poverty, built our economy, but we're living with the, the ramifications through things like climate change. Um, but your point is that only through technology are we going to be able to solve climate change. Exactly. I think personal virtue is helpful, but not enough, meaning that, you know, recycling or not traveling by plane so much, all those kinds of things are not enough that we need actually um, technological planetary scale solutions to these technological and planetary problems. So massive solar installations, alternative winds, nuclear, preferably fusion, but even nuclear fission in the intermediate, all the other things at planetary scale are going to be needed to, to address this. And so that's, that's a, that's a big assignment. That's that. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of technology. It will those solutions, no doubt. Those solutions will cause new problems. One one of the things you said though that I love that that talks about the power of optimism. I think is you said we should be optimistic not because the problems we face are smaller than we thought, but that our ability to address them is greater than we thought. I think that's a really helpful thing to treat people. Try to hold those two thoughts at the same time. That's right. And, and also that we're trusting the future. We're, we're 
trusting the fact that we actually do have progress, progress is real, and that future generations will actually have more ability to, to solve things than we do today. And so there are things that we're, you know, um, we don't know how to do right now, but we want to provision the future so that they can solve those problems. One of the first things that strikes me here is just how long Kevin Kelly has been at the forefront of embracing technology. He was checking out online communities in the 1980s. I worked at a leading media company through the 1990s, and for most of that time, we were barely even thinking about what was happening online. And as he discusses his personal history, you can hear where some of his optimism comes from. While appreciating the very latest technologies, he's also grateful for early advancements like cars and the Industrial Revolution. He avoids taking these things for granted. He also makes a point that we stress in our work here at the Optimism Institute, that being optimistic doesn't mean denying that the world has problems. And Kevin even takes this a step further, saying that we'll have even bigger challenges coming down the road. The bigger the technologies, the bigger the problems. But he also says with confidence that we'll have more capabilities to solve them. And when he talks about addressing climate change, I love hearing him say that we need planetary solutions. It's not just up to this country or that region. The entire planet needs to come together to solve this issue. And as we all set off on this daunting work, I like the idea of embracing the mindset Kevin describes when he says that we need to trust the future. And now, back to our conversation. You've said some interesting things about the, the sort of lifespans of technologies. And one of the, one of the lines you use is that technology is like babies. Could you describe that? Use the example of Edison when he invented the phonograph. Yeah. He had a whole other set of, and, and the reason I, I like asking the question is because you also describe social media as in its infancy. And because of our, the length of our lifespans, we don't, we don't necessarily think of it as infancy and we think it's all been figured out and this is what it's going to be for better or worse. Yeah. You describe it very differently. Can you explain that? So the, the inventors of things really have a good grasp of what things will eventually be used for, particularly as we make them more and more complicated. There's a, a fallacy I call thinkism, which is this idea that we can solve problems or even anticipate problems or solve problems that haven't occurred yet by thinking about them. And that's the people who like to think are, are the people who believe that thinkism, you know, that we can solve solutions by thinking about them. But in fact, it takes kind of the expression of technology to be used. It's like a baby growing up. You can think about the baby, you can kind of guess what it might be useful for, but until the baby grows up into a person, an adult, don't really you can't really see what they're good for, what they're really special about, what their what their weaknesses are, and so the same thing with with technology is that we can kind of imagine, and it's good that we're doing it, and it's important, but it's not enough to actually truly understand the technology. We have to see it in use and use it every day, and only through that use we're going to be able to see its strengths and its weaknesses, independent of what we kind of imagine it would be. And it's very easy to imagine harm. In fact, it's probably 10 times easier to imagine all the ways that things could be harmful and much more difficult to imagine the ways in which it can be really good. Right. And so, so we find it easier to imagine harm and that we tend to want to make policy based on the, on the harms that we can imagine. And what we want to do is actually based on actually what it does and actually does and if it actually causes harm and to the degrees that it does. So this idea of kind of... Um, what I call instead of precautionary principles, I call it proactionary. Precautionary is where we're kind of like we're saying we're not going to have a technology unless we can prove that it is innocent, that we, we can prove that it's that it's not harmful. Which is a weird way of of doing things because you're kind of imagining um, harms. Proactionary principle is this idea that we're going to keep testing things in actual use and making policy based on the action of the technology itself. I think that proactionary principle 
is a much more useful and practical way to guide our technology rather than the precautionary principle. Well, on that, I'd love to talk to you about social media because I, I've been one who's been very concerned. I've got kids who are now in their 20s. They kind of grew up with it in high school. And Jonathan Haidt has written some really interesting things about the damage it may be doing, particularly to young girls. But you take a somewhat different approach, I think, that maybe the jury's out in terms of how much damage it's been doing of late, but also that we are so early in the evolution of social media that let's give it a chance. Is that a fair way to describe your thoughts about it? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, Jonathan Haidt's stuff, and he's very, I, I admire because he's kind of doing it in public. He, he makes the, the resources and his data and his findings uh, public so people can examine the data. The, the, so so there, there, there are examples of harm, but I feel that well, there's several criticisms of that. One is always you always have to compare it to other things. You always have to compare it to what's existing right now, and, and it doesn't really do that. And secondly, it's very U.S.-based. Hmm. And I'm just really reluctant to, to, to judge you know, technology just from how the U.S. is being used. And thirdly, it is being used by kids, which is also – um, kids themselves again. You have to compare to what compare to kids, and what they would normally do, and the obsessive way that they use things. So, so, so I, I, I treat this as like this is like an early health survey or, or early report and a medical finding. You, you don't really want to take action on a medical finding unless it's been re- reproduced at least a hundred different studies. Okay, I mean it's like it's very easy to be to be misguided by medical studies because. The complexity of what we're trying to look at is so great that we that it takes that many kinds of trials to unravel all the all the influences, all the complexities. And so, if if you just read one medical study and that's it, you're likely to be completely misguided by it. But if you're able to do hundreds of them and do a meta analysis and all that kind of stuff, then you're better. And I think I feel we're still very early in this, and so I'm reluctant to assign any true policy based on this, those first couple of studies. I, I think one of the things that makes it tough though, I, I would say as a parent, you know, if you've got a, a child who's, you know, got four years in high school, a couple more in middle school, it's a, it's a very, they're in this test right now <laughs> and, and they've only got one childhood. Right. And so I think it's part of what makes us so uneasy where, you know, it's, it's hard to see it from our shorter lifespan as something that maybe we can hope will develop. Yeah. It, it is. And, um, you know, if I was having to raise younger kids at these years, I don't know what our own policies would be. Because I've, I, this is something I ask parents, uh, current parents, about what's their phone and screen and social media policies. And man, they range all over. There are people who, are like, yeah, our babies have iPads and they're starting, they're watching YouTube from the beginning and more more power to them. And the other's like, no, there's going to be 16 before they even get a smartphone. And so they're just, they're just all over the map. That's because we don't know. We, we actually don't know what this stuff is good for yet. And, and I think all these experiments are good. Um, I, think, I don't think we should expect to have answers. That also is going to apply to the next thing, you know, which is AI. Uh, I was just at a school just yesterday, the day before, where, where the kids have full access to YouTube during school. YouTube, Wikipedia, social media, they're all, they're all there. And the question was, you know, the chat, GPT, what are they doing? And it's really, they did a great thing because they actually took the kids together and asked them to devise the policy. Oh, interesting. And this is high schools too. It's like, okay, what do you, what would you like the, the policy to be? Right. Interesting. Which I thought was that is the best answer. You can see here that Kevin Kelly is a really different kind of thinker, and he gives us a lot to ponder ourselves. I do think he's right when he says that it's ten times easier to imagine how new things can be harmful than it is to think about how they might help. And the concept of being what he calls proactionary is really interesting. I also appreciate what he says about technologies being like babies, as we don't really know what they're going to grow up to be. That said, I do think we should acknowledge that it's a little bit tougher to think that way about something like social media when you or your own child 
might be a subject in that technology's experimental phase. And Kevin says he loves the idea of letting teenagers choose what their high school's policy should be around a new technology like ChatGPT. This one is particularly thought-provoking, and I'd love to hear what other educators in the audience think. I suppose that we have to assume that this form of AI is here to stay, like the handheld calculators that were introduced when I was in elementary school math class. So acknowledging that fact and encouraging students to think about how it should be used properly could be the right way to go. Back to our conversation and AI, since those two letters and these new technologies are on the minds of so many of us right now, I asked Kevin to share some of his own thoughts. I read or heard you say recently that you actually think AI is underhyped. Yeah. I think you're the first I've heard say that because it's been awfully hyped. Can you explain that? And, and what are your thoughts on where this is going? A lot of us are scared. A lot of us are excited about it. How should we be thinking about AI? The first thing to realize is I, I always try to emphasize AIs, that there's many, many species of AIs that will have thousands of different varieties of thinking machines to do different things. The main thing, though, is, is that we're going to realize is that we don't have AI right now, and I agree with those who say we don't, and because we, compared to what we'll have in 30 years, they'll say, you didn't have AI back then. We, we, so obviously, we have something, and something powerful and something um, amazing, but I think it's a language thing. Basically, my definition, I think the definition that we use of AI is that which we don't yet have. So, so, so I, I think what's underhyped is the thing that's coming in the long term. What's overhyped is the chat because they're nowhere near what they'll be. And so people are imagining them to be more powerful than they are. And that's, what, that's why I'm saying they're overhyped. They're, they're the universal personal intern. They're going to be, everybody's going to have an intern now, just like everybody now has a navigator that sits next to them guiding them through a city with their GPS. And we have a personal librarian, the Google search will find things for us. And now, and which was amazing. It just opened up. Having a personal navigator was it's just it changed everybody's lives and made Uber possible. Now we're going to have personal interns. Okay, everybody's going to have an intern, as many interns as you want, and you're going to work with them to co-make stuff. They're going to be instrumental in making rough drafts and summaries and having another set and critiquing and whatever. And it's going to be very rare when you actually will release the intern's work without checking it. So the folks who think the bad news, as you said earlier, people tend to go to the bad place. It, it goes to the extremes of first, first it'll take our jobs. And then there are some who even say it's going to destroy the human race. You, you, I think have said it's like you said, interns, assistants, almost more like pets maybe than than godlike creatures or systems that are going to destroy us yeah yeah don't don't worry about it. nobody has lost your job well actually i did meet finally i've been asking who has can you give me a real name of someone who's lost your job and it was medical transcriber so doctors would look at an x-ray radiologists would look say an x-ray and they would dictate what they're seeing, which used to be transcribed by a human. And now that's totally um, AI. That's one job. That's the buggy whip job. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but most, most people's, what will happen, you're not going to lose your job. You're going to lose your job description. Interesting. Jobs are bundles of tasks, and some of those tasks are going to be taken over, but your job will still be there. Kevin has an interesting take here on AI, and his thoughts about whether or not it will take jobs away are really provocative. Artificial intelligence presents a challenge for us all to be, as he says, proactionary, to think about and potentially even shape the ways that AI might improve our lives, not make them worse or threaten our livelihoods. From here, my conversation with Kevin Kelly turns to focus on his latest book, Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. I'd love to turn now uh, to your book. 
because I loved it. I, and I, I'll, I'll admit a bias. Well, first of all, I'm a fan of yours. Second of all, I'm a huge fan of short, pithy quotes and comments. I keep track of them. And as I went through your book, true story, I'm not just kissing up. I started to highlight my favorites. And then I realized it would have been easier to highlight the ones I didn't like because <laughs> all of them were great. And so if you'll let me, the name of the book is Excellent Advice for Living. Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier, and this will be a good test if my nieces and nephews are listening because uh, I plan to give this to them as an early Christmas present. <laughs> I can't tell you how many of these I, I loved. And so first, I'd love to hear why you decided to write this book, and then I'd like to go through some of the quotes that I particularly like. So so what what made you want to do this? Well, well like you, I, I like to write down quotes and pithy aphorisms and adages and lessons because um, I found that that was really helpful for me to change my own behavior. If I could if I could write something down in a way that I could repeat it to myself, remind myself of it. So this is like a little handle, like make it encapsulated, a little handle, I could grab it. So I started doing that just to change my own behavior. So like a, a piece of advice, I kind of picked up a whole earth catalog from one of the editors there was um, when I get invited to speak somewhere or to meet for someone with coffee or to go to a school to visit or whatever it is, I always have learned now to ask myself, would I do this if it was tomorrow morning? It seems really fine in six months from now. Yeah, two months from now, whatever. But like, no, um, if it's going to happen tomorrow morning, would I do it? Would, would I be excited to do it? And mostly the answer is no. So I, I say no. Okay, so that really is is, is is something, and having it in that kind of real mobile form really is helpful. Or another piece of, of advice uh, that I liked and learned and wished I knew earlier was um, if I have something in my household and I can't find it and I finally do find it, when I go to put it back, I always remind myself, well, no, no, don't put it back where I found it, put it back where I first looked for it. And so I repeat that self to me. So, so I was in the habit of writing these down and realizing that some of them, like the one I just mentioned, I wish I'd known earlier. And so um, I decided to um, make a habit of, of putting them down and spending as much time as I could to compress them into these little handy capsules. And um, our, our three kids as well, and our our parenting and style was, we didn't preach at all. We never gave any advice to our kids, very, very rarely. And but we wanted to train them by, by, by action. So rather than not what we said, but what we did, but still I felt that I wished I had seen these earlier. So I decided that we, I would give them advice finally in terms of these lists of different bits. And so it started by writing it down for them. And then I was sharing it to the, my greater extended family and, People liked them, so I shared them widely. And now after putting out a number of them on my birthday as the kind of Irish version of gift giving on your birthday, I um, put them in the book that made it easier to kind of hand to a young person and put them all in one place instead of having them on the internet. And uh, I think they work as a way to kind of remind some of these wisdoms are based on ancient you know, almost biblical or religious foundational thing about the value of giving in order to get, and uh, or that if you give, you get. And so, um, so I see I see them as reminders mostly. Um, but for some of them, a young person may have never heard of them before at all. And so that that's what we want to do. There's there's a great saying. It wasn't my saying, which is um, everything has already been said. But nobody was listening, so we have to say it again. <laughs> that's about right. so. <laughs> that's what this that. is about. Well, so and and you mentioned a lot of these are ancient, almost biblical in some cases. But it's it's remarkable though how they will hold up even today. Technology, social media. So so one I loved of many uh, was you don't need to attend every argument you're invited to, and I feel like our society, Twitter for sure. <laughs> People cannot resist accepting the invitation of the argument, and it's often just not helpful. Right. It's not helpful for anybody, for yourself or for others. So, yeah, if you can um, skip one, how about this? Serve aligned with that, which is um, 
you can choose today not to be outraged. Yeah, let it go. Right. One, <laughs> one time today, choose not to be outraged. You said a wise man said, before you speak, and I, and I think you could, you could put in the word tweet or post here too. So a wise man said, before you speak, let your words pass through three gates. At the first gate, ask yourself, is it true? At the second gate, ask, is it necessary? And at the third gate, ask, is it kind? I love that. Yeah. Kindness, as, as I say elsewhere, there, kindness is not a sign of weakness, but of strength. And kindness is, uh, you can never be too kind, really. It's, 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 again, one of these principles of generosity. And, and by the way, that wise man was uh, the poet Rumi, who was, um, for our listeners, he was an Afghan, an Afghani, who eventually made his way to, um, to Turkey. And another I liked is, I, you know, there's always been a drive, I think, to be renowned, famous in the spotlight. But I feel like in particular, our culture today leans that way. And you had a great line. You really don't want to be famous. Read the biography of a famous person. Yeah. So <laughs> fame at the really famous level is, is, is devastating. It's in the prison. It's, it's, I've been around some really famous people who are unable to walk down the street or you know, go buy something without being swamped with people who want selfies with them or, or whatever. It's, it's just, I mean, they travel with bodyguards and the entourages and their kids. You know, it's, it's just really, it's not what you think it is. Um, and, and by the way, the same thing true of, of having a billion dollars. It's an incredible burden. It's a responsibility. It's, it warps, takes over your life in many ways. And um, if at all, so my advice is if at all possible, do not earn a billion dollars. <laughs> I think I can work that out. <laughs> I'm on the right path. <laughs> you know, you mentioned, you mentioned read a biography of a, of a famous person. One of my favorites is uh, Steve Martin's called Born Standing Up. And he describes there, like a lot of performers, he's quite introverted. Right. And I've met him, yeah. Oh, I'm just a huge fan. Yeah. And he said- Well, he's said, not funny. That's the thing. He's not funny in life. He's not funny at all. He's like, brilliant. On. But no, and what he said was, you know, his he was doing stand-up forever. And then he just hit it on Saturday Night Live. And overnight, he couldn't walk into a hotel without being mobbed. And he said it was the most miserable time of his life. And one of the reasons he switched from stand-up and public appearances to making movies, because when he made movies, there wasn't a big crowd around. He could hang out in the trailer. He could sneak back into the hotel. So it's it fascinating. And and like you said, it's not his personality. He puts that on when he's acting and or performing. But and and, and everybody's sort of disappointed because they meet Steve Martin and he's incredibly serious. He doesn't crack a joke, and people think that they did something wrong. <laughs> um, this is what I wish I'd had uh, when my kids were first getting on Facebook because I used to try to tell them because you know, they call it friends on Facebook and they'd say oh I got 500 friends you have a quote I love this cultivate 12 people who love you because they are worth more than 12 million people who like you yeah and, and I mean that literally like I have some friends who have millions of followers on the socials and I say, um, like, what do you get from from, the, from that from that millions? And they say, absolutely nothing. <laughs> it doesn't. It means nothing. It's a metric that you know. Um, maybe if you're a business or your career, you could make something out of it. But for for anything human in terms of relationships or happiness or satisfaction, it's not really going to make much of a difference to you, but those 12 people around you are crucial to your own happiness. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to send this to the younger people in my family who are now raising their own kids. Right. Because uh, this one really spoke to me. You said, you can find no better medicine for your family than regular meals together without screens. Yes. So there's several parts that regular meals together no screens. And, and, and by the way, my own observation about the no screen things is, is it has to come from the parents. I've seen 
families where the kids are prohibited, but the parents are kind of like sneaking looks at it. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So, so yeah, so no, no screens at the meal. And I mean like no little screens or big screens. The families that watch TV, it just boggles my mind during meals. But anyway, so no screens at all. And by the way, the, um, I hang out with the Amish sometimes and one of their, um, goals, one of the one of the criteria that they use to decide whether to accept the technology in their lives or not is whether it will help them have every meal with their children growing up until they leave breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all three meals. So their schools are with a short bike ride away from their house, and their kids come home for lunch. They have breakfast together as a family. They have lunch together as a family. They have dinner with together the family until they leave home. Amazing. Every day. And you said they will they will accept technologies that help. Yeah, right, that. right. So 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 like sometimes they will um, the men will have a workshop in the back, either the farmers or their a workshop in the back, so they can be at home. They were they were like the original home business people. There was a there's like uh, Adam Davidson the the um, Planet, Planet Money guy wrote a book about the Amish because he was just impressed by their entrepreneurship and they would arrange to build these little manufacturing things in their backyard. And what's interesting about that is because they were building it in their backyard, they were very clean because they were in their backyard. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there weren't toxic spills. They, they were manufacturing. They actually had a little... CNC because the Amish horse and buggy would have computer controlled CNC machines running in their in their with a 13 year old girl with a bonnet running the CNC machine, but they were in their backyard and they were very clean and tidy because they were in their backyard. And so, um, the idea though was to have a business so they could be there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It occurred to me as we spoke that Kevin Kelly might be the most old-fashioned futurist you'll ever meet. For someone who has spent so much of his life thinking about the future and who is himself the ultimate technophile, most of his advice and the wisdom he shares goes back to values that we today would probably consider to be old-fashioned. Dinner together as a family with no screens. You can never be too kind. He even admires the ways of the Amish. I don't know if old-fashioned futurist is an oxymoron, but I do think that Kevin is one, and it's one of the traits that makes him so fascinating. Now back to more selections from his great new book. This one uh, could be both literal and metaphorical, I suppose, but I loved it. Don't wait for the storm to pass. Dance in the rain. Right. It is metaphorical. I haven't... There there have been times when I've gone out to the rain, and, and, and I'm shocked by people who don't like to go out in the rain because yeah, you get a little wet. There's umbrellas, but it's just something magical about, about, you know, being out in the rain. I have, I did have a friend with his kids and um, whenever there was bad weather, he always flipped around and he said, this is like, this is like, this is like a gift. It was, it was raining storm. Let's go out in the storm. Instead of like, oh, it's raining out, I can't go out. No, no, no. Like this, we've been waiting for a month for the rain to go flashing. We're gonna go out and get soaking wet, and we're gonna see what the river creek looks like, you know. And it's like this was the opportunity, and that's sort of what this thing is a little bit about. It's kind of flipping that, saying, no, no, this is actually like that rain and that kind of the storms and that kind of craziness is actually the attraction. It's actually the destination. And you kind of want to take advantage of it. There's a great uh, video you may have seen that was bouncing around the internet probably a year ago. Shows a dad with two young kids in fold-out chairs next to a road with a huge puddle. And they're holding up signs that say, please splash us. (laughs) And the cars (laughs) would come by and just douse them. And the kids are cheering and the cars are honking. (laughs) It's just beautiful. Same idea. Same idea. Right, right. Uh, This one, I I think, applies to so much. And I keep bringing things back to technology and social media, but pay attention to what you pay attention to. Yes, yes. 
paying attention is, is, is a remarkable thing. And, and it, it is amazing how much we're not aware of ourselves and how opaque we are to ourselves. And this is part of this process of becoming the best you and becoming full, you know, fully yourself, which I think is the grand task in our lives to arrive at the place on the day before we die that we can say, I fully become myself. And so part of that process is understanding and having a good uh, view of being self-aware. And that self-awareness includes paying attention to it. We're not even often aware of what we're paying attention to. We're not articulating it. And just that kind of meta thing of paying attention to what you're paying attention can help you steer your attention and where you're putting it. Because that's really all we have. This is the, the one scarcity that we have in this abundant, super abundant world is our own human attention, which is never going to change. It's 24 hours. And so you spend it, you lose it. And so that scarcity, yet we're, we waste it. We, we, we give it away for really cheap. Um, when you are, by my calculations, when you're watching TV ads, you are working for like $2. Your, your, your attention is worth $2 and $2.5 an hour. So, so, so we're giving your, that's how much the media companies value your attention. So when you're giving attention to a, a ad on a, on a television, you're working for two and a half dollars. That's how much they think you're worth. You want to be very much aware of where your attention is going and pay attention to how much time you spend on the screen. There are, there are devices, there are little apps that tell you. Here's one. You introduced a word I'd never heard before. Uh, you said embrace pronoia, which is the opposite of paranoia. Choose to believe that the entire universe is conspiring behind your back to make you a success. Where'd that come from? Well, that was actually coined by a guy whose name I've forgotten about 20 years ago, and he wrote a book called Pronoia. And paranoia, as you know, is this belief that the world is conspiring to take you down, to hurt you. And that flip is, again, in line with the basic idea of gratitude and generosity, which I think is really at the fundamental paradox of, of the world. So, so the fundamental paradox of our existence right here is that the more you give, the more you get generosity is the is the way to receive right and, and that the the foundational thing gratitude is the only prayer i mean it's, it's just like this idea of giving and sharing and being generous and being abundant is paradoxically the way to be selfish yeah you know it's right just, so, 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 so there's some there's some weird paradox that the more you give, the more you get. And why that should be, who knows? But that's how it is. And this is very reliable. So reliable you can depend on that. I was really struck by Kevin encouraging us to live our lives so that the day before we die, we can say, I have fully become myself. And I looked up the book Pronoia. It was written by a guy named Rob Bresny, B-R-E-S-Z-N-Y, in 1999. I don't know a whole lot more about it than that, but it does seem to have a lot of good reviews online, and it clearly had an impact on Kevin. So you might want to check it out. Now let's jump to another one of my favorite excerpts from Kevin's new book. Aim to die broke. Give your beneficiaries give to your beneficiaries before you die. It's more fun and useful to them. Spend it all. Your last check should go to the funeral home and it should bounce. <laughs> right, right, right. So the idea, um, this is particularly those who are older who may have children and accumulate some something that they want to give. And, that, and the question is, is like, this goes back to the, the, the burden of the billionaires, which is really, is really revealed in how they have to, where they're going to give to their kids. How much are they going to give? because it can easily derange somebody that's, that becomes a real issue is how, how do you even do it? And so even for middle-class people, even for um, people that are probably the audience for this book, 
they may have something to pass on, but you, it's from my observation, it's much better to pass on before you leave because it's funner. You get to control it in a way you don't get to control it when you're gone. And it's healthier for, for everybody. The idea, I think, of passing on a whole bunch of money after you die, I'm hoping that becomes a really old-fashioned idea that is just discarded because I, I, think it's, uh, I, I think there's so many things that can go wrong with that. That's right. This is one I, I'd heard someone else talking about recently in terms of trying to bring together people with disparate points of view on politics or other social issues, whatever it may be. And you said, constantly search for overlapping areas of agreement and dwell there disagreements will appear to be edge cases. And it seems to me that so many in the world, no matter where we are on the political spectrum or our viewpoints or our upbringing, about 80% of the things that matter, we agree on. We love our kids. We want the world to be safe and peaceful, right? I mean, is that is that what you're trying to say here? That's, that's actually p- part of it. And then there's another part of it, which is kind of related, which is that, you know, conventional wisdom, what everybody knows. Most of what everybody knows is true. <laughs> right. right. I mean, particularly in the kind of entrepreneur area, there's this kind of looking down on what everybody knows and stuff. But no, actually, most of what everybody knows is true. Most of the stuff that we all share. So, so we have far more in common than we have differences. We tend to focus on the differences because that's where innovation comes from. But by and large, we, should, we can also celebrate the fact that we have all this stuff in common. And part of it is what we think about things and part of it is what we believe is true. So, so that, so, so I would say that's one part of it. The other part of kind of dwelling in the comment is like, if you have a disagreement with someone starting from where you agree is one of the best places to kind of help you live with that or resolve that. So, so like if you, rather than kind of starting with everything where you disagree, you want to begin with what you agree and that helps you soften the investigation and the discussion about where you disagree. So this one, and, and I'm going to try to practice what you suggest we preach here, which is you can be whatever you want to be. So be the person who ends meetings early. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Because I've been someone who has, who has run meetings. I've, I've sat in too many. And there's, there's no rule that says you can't end early. Right, exactly, and and other the other my one other bit of advice for uh, running a meeting is um, you're much better to have the rule that no one's allowed to speak unless they're going to say something that nobody else in the room knows. They have to actually contribute something that not everybody knows. So it's stating the obvious or just stating their opinions, whatever it is. No, 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 no. Like, yeah, you may speak if you tell us something that nobody here knows. So. Um, Ending meetings, yeah, there, there's another a couple other bits of advice about promptness. So one is, I think promptness is a sign of respect. And secondly, there is no such thing as being on time. You're either early or you're late. <laughs> I love there's that. no, and it's your choice. There's no on time. There's your alert, you're early or you're late. And so um, there's a third thing, which is that we... Um, the things that tick you off are probably the things that make you tick. And so I get ticked off by people who are late. And so I always have to examine myself about why that is. And because um, that is one of my pet teases, my family will tell you, I just, um, I have to be early. Um, I just, I have to be early. I, I used to work with Ted Turner and he actually started meetings about 10 minutes early. <laughs> and, and you learned and, and you were never late for his meetings. It you know, shows how you value your time, right? That's, that's the thing. It's, it's disrespectful. Someone said one time too, the problem with being punctual is there's never anyone there to appreciate it, <laughs> which I think holds. Well, I, I like, I like, yeah, I like that. That's, that's, um, I can actually identify with that because I, uh, yeah, would generally be early. So thank you for this. You know, there's many, many things in here for optimists as well, for creative people. And um, I think of the technology as like a car. Um, we need brakes to steer the car. You need, you need brakes to steer. But we need the engine to be more powerful than the brakes. 
And so the optimists on the engine try and drive it forward. And I think sometimes the brakes are too strong and we're not steering, we're just braking. So we really want to make sure we keep building the engine to be powerful. And that's what I see the optimist's job as. That's a great place to finish. And I, I know you're going to have great success with this book. I, I thank you for it. You're putting a great thing out into the world and I'm going to keep recommending it. And if my niece and nephews are listening, don't buy it because it's coming. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's really terrific. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. Well, thank you. I'm glad things worked out technologically. And I appreciate your questions and your interest in the book. Thanks, Kevin. I love Kevin's analogy of the engine and the brakes. He says that optimism is the engine. And while brakes are necessary, the engine needs to be the stronger of the two. And after listening today, I hope you can see why I admire Kevin so much. And I'll add that he's also an incredibly gracious person. You may have caught him at the end saying that he was glad the technology worked out. Well, that's because when we started our call, I had a massive tech meltdown on my end. Nothing was working. I could see him but not hear him, and he could neither see nor hear me. It was a disaster. Here I was interviewing, of all people, Kevin Kelly, and my technology was failing completely. But he patiently waited for me to reboot and get things back on track. And for that, I'm very grateful. It's a pretty cool thing when you meet someone you've long admired and find out that they're just as good a person as you hoped they'd be. Thank you for listening today. And if you have the time to leave us a rating or review, we'd appreciate your feedback. And I hope you'll check out other episodes of Blue Sky and maybe even subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when the next one comes out. And if you like what you heard today, check out the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>